Everybody and welcome back to Flight Through Entirety, the only Doctor Who podcast who is a shadow of your past and of our future. I'm Brendan. I'm Nathan. I'm Todd. And we are embarking on possibly the strangest, most ethereal, and open to debate Doctor Who story to date with Warrior's Gate. It's not as strange as the Celestial Toy Maker, is it? Yeah, but it, it, it's good and strange, yeah, rather than true. rather than terrible and slightly racist. And I didn't even intend for that opening to rhyme, but you know, it's just the astral Jung and holistic view of this entire story. This is another one that uh, I didn't sort of see as a kid. I saw it as a teenager. And getting ahead of ourselves a bit, Ghostlight is a story that a lot of people hold up and say, you know, this is the most confusing and dense the Doctor Who ever got. And I watched this and Ghostlight around the same time as each other for the first time, around 15, 16. Ghostlight, I understood first time through. This, I had to watch it four times. But even at the end of the first one, I'm like, I have no idea what that was about, but God, I love it. Really interesting because I just, as a kid, I never understood this. It was my least favourite story of the season and has been for... Uh, 35 years or how many years ago it was made it was always my least favorite it's no longer my least favorite now the documentary actually on the the dvd release is fantastic it mm. really helped me mm. to sort of piece together a lot of things in my mind it's been several weeks since i've watched it so i've forgotten it all so that's great um but back, <laughs> but back to what you're saying about ghostlight i don't understand how people can say they don't get it I mean, the first time through, some of the audio you can't hear but if when you watch it everything to me logically makes sense whereas with this i can still watch it now and go I still don't understand parts of this at all. I, I don't either, and I don't think it's a problem. And I think there are things that don't really make sense. Not in a bad way. I don't mean that as a criticism. I mean, I think there are things like, why is the world beyond the gateway just black and white photos? Like, you know, there's all sorts of things. And I think, I think this is unusual in this season in that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Every other story features scientists in a major role, like mm-hmm. every other story. So you've got Harden, you've got the Savants, you've got Dexeter, you've got Kalmar and those horrible flea-bitten people <laughs> who, who are being oppressed by the lords. Their comedy beards. <laughs> Their comedy beards. Uh, more of which next week. Um, <laughs> you know, you've got tree mass, like you've got the monitor. There's mm. scientists. There's no scientists in this. Mm. And, in fact, time isn't working by scientific principles at all in this story. And it really works on magical and poetical principles, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, it does in a way. And I think also we need to look at uh, what's happening on the other side at the moment, the other side not of the mirror, but over on ITV, who currently have the immensely popular Sapphire and Steel. Is that immensely popular? It is, it is, because Sapphire and Steel was commissioned as a children's show. Like, if you watch the first Sapphire and Steel story, it is explicitly for children. The two main supporting cast in it are children. Yeah. But 
it was so popular with adults that if you look at the second Sapphire and Steel story, that's incredibly adult. There's no children. There's, I, you know, you can't exactly say lots of death, but it deals with the idea of death a great deal. That's the one in the railway yeah, station. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so that was incredibly popular, and it was being billed at the time as, you know, this is ITV's answer to Doctor Who. Now, of course, it didn't have the longevity, mm. but it played with the idea of time in ways that Doctor Who didn't tend to. So, yeah, if we think of classic Doctor Who, stories that play with time, we've got Day of the Daleks, we've got this one. Maybe Space Museum? Space Museum a little, you know, in one episode. Mm. And, yeah, we get other stories where time is a factor, like Hinchcliffe's favourite of an evil from millennia ago mm. yeah but well, that's one thing i really love about this story is its relationship with time and exploring time through language yeah but i'm not quite sure that it is as magical as you say nathan i think it possibly it's magical in the arthur c clark sense that of sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Except, I mean, think about it. We're at the intersection between two universes, at the CVE. And when the CVE is portrayed in full circle, is it the beginning of full circle? Mm -hmm. It's like a sort of video effect and it's it's got a technical term. It's a charged vacuum in Boitment. It's a, a space phenomenon and it makes the TARDIS go all wibbly and things. This time, the gateway between the universes is a white void with a gothic door in it. Which is able to sustain life. Like, you yes. know, there's, no, there's not a, it has it's not a, a planet. It's got a floor. It's got, like, just whiteness. It, it has air. And for some reason, it exists and, the, and is shrinking. Yeah. So it's, it is a magical realm like, the, that, you know, the first episode of The Land of Fiction is, you know, the nearest analogue, which is mm. another just white studio. Mm. And you can get through the magic mirrors if you've been touched by the time winds, but the time winds affect organic matter differently from inorganic matter, which is why the doctor can go through, but canine can't go back. You know, that's magical, the fact that, you know, the rules of time affect life differently. And and the fact that the I Ching works, you know, like when we first, the first thing that we get about time in this is the very opening where Aldo and Royce, who are t the two crew members on the on that ship, throw a coin and the coin stops at the very apex of the coin toss. So time becomes about chance and outcomes and things. It stops at the point where it's going to be decided whether it'll be heads or tails. And then the I Ching, which is also about throwing coins, is explicitly said to be a random sampling of events. Mm. And so it, you can use the I Ching to foretell the future because the tossing of coins is like a, a microcosm of, of, you know, the way that things are moving sort of generally in the universe. And that, that's a kind of magical principle, I think. It is, it is. And I think part of the problem with the story is... Well, in general, the script was very troubled, and I'll go back to that in a moment. Something that isn't really made explicit in the dialogue is the way that Farrells navigate time travel. They look into the future, see all the possible things that can happen, and pick the one they want. So the way Birok navigates the ship is he looks at all the possible destinations the ship can go to, and chooses the one they go to, and that's where they go, and that's why they need him as a navigator. But that is, that's in Stephen Gallagher's original script, but it 
isn't explicitly explained on screen. It's really interesting because when I was watching the documentary, his original script is more like a novel. Mm. And then mm. I was astounded to find out that Bidmead and the director, Paul Joyce, basically had a weekend in a house and Bidmead is typing the script from his novel yeah. and, and Joyce is saying, well, I can do that, I can do that, put that in and that sort of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and Paul Joyce is saying, oh, yes, Bidmead and I wrote the script based on that. And Bidmead is saying, well, I actually wrote the script and the director was in the house at the same time. Slight <laughs> difference of opinion. But it is the sort of thing that Bidmead routinely says. Yes. <laughs> he, he does finish the documentary by saying, you know, it was a very interesting story and, you know, I think Stephen has to take a great deal of credit for that. And I think Paul has to take a great deal of credit because he was trying to do something that the BBC had never seen. And I think I should take a bit of credit as well. Oh. And that's his last word. Do you, Chris? <laughs> There's no knowing smile or anything. It's just like, no, no, I worked on this, yes. Look, I mean, I think Bidmead, you know, in a sense, Bidmead is right uh, because this, this whole season has this incredible thematic unity. Mm -hmm. um, it's got Bidmead written all over it. Uh, it in uh, Castrovalvi, you get something fairly similar. In Frontios, you know, his two later scripts, again, they're really Bidmeady. Yeah. Um, so you can tell that he's hugely responsible. And he tells the story that, um, you know, he only did one year because he had to rewrite all of the scripts so heavily that it was just sort of too much work. Mm. And it's easy to believe. Yeah, I yeah. Think. Well, here he's had, having to rewrite it, you know, Keeper of truck, and he has to insert the master because Johnny Byrne's gone on holidays. Then he's writing the last script. He's yeah. worked heavily on Full Circle. He ripped all the humour out of the Leisure Hive, and he certainly wrote the first episode of Megloss and mm -hmm. left the rest of it to their own devices. And, so, uh, and stated, okay, he did a rewrite, but half of that got chucked out. Yeah, quite so rightly. He, yeah. <laughs> so he's actually done a lot. It's really interesting that in all the, docu the documentaries for this season on all the DVDs, never talk about, he never talks about why he left the show. Like, mm -hmm. in that opinion that you've just voiced. But I thought it was that he wanted a pay rise and John Nathan Turner couldn't get one or didn't fight hard enough for it. I just, you know, it's one of those fan yeah, well, myths and, and, you it, know. The thing is, it's entirely possible that he might have said, look, you know, I can't keep up. I love this job, but I can't keep up with the workload unless you pay me more. And John, and John might have said, well, look, no, we don't have the budget. And Chris said, okay, then. Mm. You know, it's... It, it's I suppose we're so used to 1980s Doctor Who being this place where creatives leave the show really angry, as we'll see in later seasons, <laughs> um, that pa perhaps we just don't hear that much about Chris because it was just a business decision. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we never really question why Anthony Reid left the show or Douglas Adams left the show. Mm. They kind of did their year or 18 months and then went, okay, that was fun, mm. I'm off. Mm. And certainly, much like Anthony Reid, uh, Chris Bidmead did come back and yeah, right. produce more scripts. Yeah. On the, um, the science of how Biroc chooses a destination, I think that's why the magical elements work. Biroc looks into the future, right? Yeah. He chooses this potential future where the gateway can be physically accessed with an atmosphere, and he creates that future. And because it's a closed system like eSpace, yeah. the laws of coincidence are different. Yeah. And that's great that you've said all that, but if you're watching it and you <laughs> yes. don't understand that, like I don't understand it, it becomes very confusing and, and you just have to accept certain things. And I know that you're saying yeah. that you feel that it doesn't affect your enjoyment of yeah. it. It does affect mine and I think that's one of the, the threads throughout in my entire time watching Doctor Who is that for me, in my head, it has to make some sort of... 
I have to get an explanation. That's just yeah. me. Yeah. And so th that's why for this story, when bizarre things are happening, it's like sometimes I think the direction's great and I like it for that. Other times I think the direction's not so good. Yeah. Or if I don't get an explanation somewhere along the way that makes sense, I sort of begin to turn off. Yeah, that, I, I, That's entirely fair because um, this is another one that Rod didn't like either. He gave it four out of ten. He really hated the ending, which we'll come back to later, but he hated the lack of explanation as well. And these ideas have actually been used far more successfully in um, two episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. What one? Which one? Contagion, which is a season two episode, which deals with the relics of a race called the Iconians, who have these gateways and they used to plunder other worlds and rule other worlds with that, but they were all killed by an uprising. Oh, is that the terrible one where... It's the, got Carolyn Seymour in it. And the Enterprise's sister ship explodes. And, yes, yeah. And Carolyn Seymour's a Romulan, Romulan captain. It's the first of her two turns as a Romulan captain. Yes, that's right. And But before Linda Thorson turns up as a Cardassian. Yeah. Uh, the other episode that I think is influenced a little, not quite as much, but um, Remember Me. I love Remember Me. Yeah, it's That's great. a Beverly Crusher one. Yeah. Where she's in a collapsing universe. universe. And it, that has the wonderful exchange of computer what is the nature of the universe the universe is an oblate spheroid 650 meters in diameter <laughs> you know and that's the same kind of that's the same kind of um messing with your mind that you get with this story with the collapsing and oh it's further going there than coming back and because we don't objectively see that as an audience yeah even though there's people talking about it all the time it still comes as a bit of a surprise to us I mean, it makes sense, and it sounds like a pretty big mead kind of idea that mm. mass warps space-time, mm -hmm. you know, um, and the the mass of the ship is, is, you know, enormous because it's made out of dwarf star alloy, and so yeah. that's why the thing collapses. It collapses because of them. Mm. You know, we haven't really talked much about the ship or the crew or anything like that. <sighs> yeah, go on, Todd. <laughs> no, no, no. Um... <laughs> I was just going to say, I like, I love that term, dwarf star alloy. I yeah. love the fact that the space is contracting. Like, that's all the stuff that I understand. And I yeah. know that they've got to get out of there because it's going to, you know, everything's going to blow up. Mm. And, and those are the elements that I hang, hang on to when I'm watching this for me to make, yeah. to make it make sense. The crew are really interesting. Having um, Royce and Aldo as sort of like, you've, you've got the bridge crew and you've got like, them as more the common man downstairs but the fact is they are slave traders yeah. basically yeah, yeah and so they're the comedy characters you know they're mm. kind of like rosencrantz and guildenstern or so you know stefano and trinculo or something like that yeah, yeah or yeah. yafet koto's character in alien <laughs> you remember that there's there's two i think oh, yeah, 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 the, yeah, yeah. this draws massively from alien but um and they're funny and we laugh at them and you know people mistake them for each other over the phone and stuff and then they kill a bunch of the slaves trying to revive them. I know, it's horrific. It's very, like, I kind of think it's very homesy in the fact that you've got these mm -hmm. two characters. I mean, I feel, I feel torn at the end that the whole crew die, you know? Like, like do, did they all need to die? Like, I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, it's a real... There's a practical problem with leaving someone alive. Yes, no, well, yes <laughs> We're not having the same episode title <laughs> twice. You know, it's like, it's like Doctor Who magazine having the mutants twice. In the original script mm. with Royce and Aldo, they were originally Aldo and Waldo, and they were going to look visually similar, <laughs> and that was the gag of no one being able to tell them apart. Right. 
Barry Letts vetoed it. He's like, no, when you know, we're it's not. Too silly. It's too silly. This is the, exactly the kind of thing we've been fighting against. Instead, they go for the classic visual gag of one being very tall and one being very short. Mm. And it, they do have some great comedy bits, like, oh, oh, the string in my leg's gone, sir. Or yeah, you push, I pull. Yeah, 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 you push, I pull. Um, but also, before Rorvik fires the MZ, they have that whole thing about, well, he's always done right by us, hasn't he? And then they run off. <laughs> <laughs> it was Stephen Gallagher's deliberate intent that you wouldn't see them again after that, so maybe those two survived somehow. According to Stephen Gallagher, they're not on the ship at the end. They've run off into the void because they're just sick of all this crap. Right. right. It's interesting. I don't really like them in episode one. I warm to them as we go through. Mm. I also think um, Packard and Lane are really well played as well. Yeah. I think yeah, they're, yeah. they're given enough to do and, the, and both of the actors give sympathetic performances. Yeah, we have um, the great Kenneth Cope, um, a.k.a. Um, Hopkirk, deceased as, oh, Packard. Uh, as Packard. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, He's described in the script as, you know, someone who's just given, given up on any sort of fight. And you definitely get that impression with his character. Like, there's that great sort of petulant teenager bit he does at the beginning. Like, a report from the helm, that's you, remember? And he just kind of shrugs, what do you want me to say? <laughs> well, what? <laughs> <laughs> he has a bit of a tizzy. <laughs> it's, it's that, you know, these aren't um, kind of space people like the Marestrans from Planet of Evil. Mm-hmm. You know, these are, these are, and again, it's, it's really heavily ripped off Alien, I think, where in Alien, from which, you know, this story borrows its opening scene, where yeah. we're just crawling around the, the ship. In Alien... Everyone's sort of identifiable kind of working class people. They're eating Chinese food out of takeaway containers. They're smoking. You know, they're not space people. They're not, you know, people from 2001 or that film with Michael York. What's that film with Michael York? Logan's Run. Logan's Run. You know, they're not, they're not space people. They're just sort of ordinary identifiable people. And I think that's it here. Rorvik's the boss. He's a bit of a dick. Everyone's sick of him. They're all kind of bored of their jobs. They're like the Morox, only, you know, with less eyebrows. Um, <laughs> so they are identifiable. They are kind of sympathetic for that reason. Are they, all, are they from A-Space or are they from N-Space? No, they're from, they're from N-Space. And so they've come in to, to um, capture all of... Um, ca- yeah, you see, I'm not very clear about that either. Yeah, I, it's not made terribly clear. I, th- I think what it is is the Farrells essentially used to live at zero coordinates. So they could plunder E-Space and N-Space right. and what have you. Yeah, I, I think they probably are from N-Space because uh, they're looking for a way out as well. Yeah. They've been stuck in E-Space for months. Mm. They haven't been stuck in zero coordinates for months because when they go outside, they're really surprised by the white void and they haven't seen the gateway before. They've been stuck in E-Space as well. Mm. Rovik. He's really interesting, I think, as a villain. He's utterly humorless. He does do that unfortunate laugh at the very end. I'm finally getting things done. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> but that's like, a... he's gone. He's gone. He's just gone completely insane now. <laughs> But he, he's utterly humanless. Like, Lane tries a joke at one point and Rorvik just shuts him down. Yeah, he's yeah. got no sense of humour. He's utterly boring and pedestrian and mundane and that makes him the villain. And, you know, he's, he's like this in a job where he's transporting lots of slaves and he's prepared to risk the lives of the slaves, uh, you know, 
In fact, let them all die, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) They're all horrible people. You know, they're bored with their jobs, but their jobs are transporting slaves around the place. But I think it's a really tough role to actually play because sometimes he has to be reasonable at times and other Mm. times show that he is completely humourless. And initially it was a performance that I disliked for many years, but watching it again, I actually think does a really good job navigating the waters mm. of this character to mm. make him believable. Yeah. Um, so I actually, again, initially, when I begin to watch it, having not seen it for ages, it's sort of like, oh, you. But then as it goes along, I'm thinking, no, you're doing a very good job. Mm. It's yeah. the banality of evil thing, that he's just some guy doing a job and not thinking about the moral implications of it. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a big step up from his, you know, essentially in terms of function, and in terms of mentality, he's like the co-pilot from The Horns of Nymon. Yeah. But he's, yeah. look at the difference, you know. We get interiority with his character. The scene I love him most in, and yeah, he, do, he does a horrible thing, but the scene I love him most in is when he says, well, we'll just revive all the Farrells, and everyone just looks at him and he shouts, let's do something for a change. And you actually... You don't necessarily sympathise with his character, but you understand the desperation. Whereas the Doctor and Romana are told to do nothing. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, that's the interesting thing: the 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 way time works on these sort of principles of randomness and and the way it's cyclical. Mm-hmm. So. You know, originally uh, the Farrells have slaves and are the oppressors and then it switches around and they become slaves and the oppressed and then it switches back, they're freed Mm. and they're going around. And the way that's achieved is by doing nothing. And it's it's Rorvik's determination to to get something done that actually gets them all killed. Mm -hmm. The original title for the story was Dreamtime. It was only uh, changed to Warrior's Gate when it was put into the e-space framework, because originally it was going to be a dream world. Right. But then when it was put into the e-space framework, they were given, you know, a science behind it rather than being the dream world. And Stephen Gallagher was inspired by what he'd read of the Aboriginal Dreamtime. Right. And a big part of the Aboriginal Dreamtime is things being cyclical and things going in cycles and this, this has happened before and this will happen again. Birok has that wonderful line of the weak enslave themselves. And as the Doctor points out in episode four, you're not talking about the human slaves you had, you're talking about yourselves. And that is something I think that might have been a bit more relatable for children because, of course, they would have learned about the Roman Empire and they would have learned about um, the Greeks and the ancient cultures which did have slaves but ended up sinking into decadence, Mm. which is what happens to the Pharaohs. And you've got the feral banquet scene being um, counterpointed with Rorvik's men having their pickles. Yeah. And, you know, Rorvik trying to give this great rousing speech of we've all got to stay alive and they're handing around sandwiches and chicken legs. You know, yeah. it's, it's, like, it's like Beckett. It's theatre of the absurd. It's the dumb waiter. <laughs> In fact, that is one of my absolute favourite things about the story. So the banquet scene with Birok isn't really in the past because the Doctor and Birok are having a conversation about what it was like then. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. some. It's not that they haven't been transported back into the past. It's like 
uh, like some kind of representation of what happened. And the Doctor and Birok aren't really involved in it because they're commenting on it as it happens. And then the Gundans rush in with their incredible music. And then suddenly we flick to the present day and it's a different banquet. You know, the Gundams yeah, come yeah, in, yeah, yeah. they smash the axe into the table and suddenly the axe is covered in cobwebs. The thing is, though, if the Doctor and Birok aren't really there... Who knocked over the goblet that the yes, doctor picks up? It's so clever, isn't it? They are really there, but it's not a real thing. <laughs> it's, there's some strange time thing happening. But that's right. When the doctor first goes into that room, he picks a goblet up on, that's been knocked over on the table. <laughs> and then later in episode, episode three, three yeah. he knocks the goblet over. <laughs> but that cliffhanger is so tremendous where, you know, suddenly he's surrounded by Rorvik. We don't see them travel through time or anything there. They're just there, mm-hmm. and it's the axe just suddenly covered with uh, cobwebs that shows that time has passed. And it, I agree, you can't tell what's happening or what the state <laughs> of any of this is, but aesthetically, it's so great. Um, I agree with you, aesthetically, it is so great. I've got my hands in my head at the moment, <laughs> yeah, everyone. Um, the boys are having this conversation, and it is that aspect of the story that does my head in because. I, I still don't understand how they can be in that one place and then suddenly, just because an axe goes into a table, they're suddenly magically transported back into where everybody else is. I just don't understand. No, and it's not explained. Presumably it's something Birok does, but, you know, like, it's such a great visual and such a terrific cliffhanger that mm. uh, I don't care. But I do. <laughs> so, so it's sort of like, you know, great cliffhanger. Uh, what? <laughs> you know? It's, but also, like... It, what's the nature of that world like it's clearly black and white photographs for budgetary reasons i think because mm. we're just shooting in the studio and there's no location stuff well paul joyce took those photographs himself he uh, went to that country house with his um, girlfriend at the time and took these photos i believe what his intent was because if you like it was a replay it wasn't the original time so it lacked it yeah. lacked some of the original detail it doesn't explain why romana when romana goes through at the end it's still black and white but there you are <laughs> yeah. I'd, li- I'd like to talk about Paul Joyce a bit because he is fascinating and I would actually love to have him in the new series as a he, director. You know, he, he's trying a lot of different shots. Um, you talked about like the original shots that we first see, which are a take on Alien, you were saying. Yeah. And I sit there going, what is this? Why have <laughs> we got these shots? I mean, this is just me. We've got the coin toss where... It's heavily pixelated, which yeah. I think, you know, they're trying something different, but it doesn't quite work. Doesn't yet. quite Isn't work. Is Graham Harper responsible for some of that stuff? Um, that was Paul Joyce, and um, the head of serials tried to have the shot removed from the episode. He was so displeased with it, and Joyce put his foot down and sort of said, no, you're not. And uh, I believe because John Nathan Turner gave the head of serials his assurance that Paul Joyce would never be hired on the program again, he <laughs> let it slide. But Joyce is actually fired. Yes. And, and and it was like a weekend or something or, or a few days of shooting and he, in the doco he says he knew that they'd come back to him because he was the only one who, who had the whole picture in his head of how to shoot it. I have heard that version. I've also heard the version where it was hours. It was literally hours. Oh. He was fired during a camera rehearsal because wow. um, the crew were getting frustrated with him. And especially that shot at the beginning, that tracking shot where you can see the lights, yeah. the lighting director threw a fit. And the writing director, every studio session, wrote letters to um, the head of serials talking about what an ass Paul Gallagher was. 
Uh, sorry, Paul Joyce was. So he was fired during a rehearsal and he just kind of went, okay, fair enough. He went to the BBC bar. John Nathan Turner stepped in and said, I'm going to direct this. A few hours later in the BBC bar, John Nathan Turner comes in and says, okay, Paul, I think we need to find a way to make this work. And it was because the way Paul Joyce wrote his camera scripts only he could decipher them. <laughs> Clever man. <laughs> <laughs> Clever man. But, um, yeah, he's got these wonderful influences. He's got um, films like uh, Orphe by Jean Cocteau, yeah. um, which is where the imagery with the mirror comes from. Those opening tracking shots, as well as being inspired by Ailey, were inspired by Roots, which is, uh -huh. of course, the series about the slaves being brought over to America, featuring um, LeVar Burton yeah. in, one of his in one of his earlier starring roles. And so Paul Joyce looked for, as well as visual similarities, he looked for thematic similarities. Um, there's a 1940s film called Kiss Me Deadly, which inspired a lot of his shots. Now, it's not a science fiction film, but, for instance, that shot at the end where Rorvik is standing over the Doctor... That is a lift from Kiss Me Deadly, right. where you only, until the end, you only saw the villains, usually. You saw their legs, and you saw people through their legs, you know, to imply that they can always get away. Won't uh, Richard be really angry at us if we don't mention La Belle? Oh, La Belle. Et La Bette. Et La Bette, also by Jean Cocteau, yeah, yeah. I believe. And yeah, that was a huge inspiration, not only for the banquet hall and the banquet scene. With it, the look of the... The Farrells as well. The look of the Farrells, who started out, I think, as the Tharks and then became the Tharls until a very late stage where someone realised they were already Tharls and finally became the Farrells. And to add to the realism, the orange suits that the crew wears are the same suits NASA technicians wear. Right. But Rorvik's uniform was designed from scratch. June Hudson designed a beautiful costume for Lala Ward. Pretty much a, a Rococo-style outfit, because June Hudson and Lala Ward's interpretation of Romana, as we've seen quite often, is male clothes suited to the female form. Yeah. So she was going to be in this Rococo outfit. For those of you who don't know what a Rococo outfit is, the clockwise soldiers in The Girl in the Fireplace, oh, David yes. Tennant story. Now, the only problem with June Hudson's costume is that everything was in green. Nice. <laughs> So she would have just vanished <laughs> into the white. Yeah. So the top she eventually wore mm. was actually inspired by a, uh, a top that was a favourite of Paul Joyce's wife. So I think there must have been some visual similarity because I think when that happened, Paul Joyce said, you know what, I, I think I've got an idea of something Lala would look lovely in. And she, you know, she does look all floaty and ethereal as she wanders about and she gets that wonderful scene very early on with the privateer crew. You know, I don't like her in that scene. No? Which scene is it? <laughs> so it's the one where she comes out and she's being all mysterious and the doctor. She's, you know... The, oh, one not of the that things... silly thing where she... This is the signal I'm going to give you, like, yeah, to the doctor, the which, which, which I just think is so stupid. No, I, I... It doesn't work. No, I don't think it quite works. Oh. And I think she needs to be being more like Tom because part of this is that she leaves the doctor at the end to become the Doctor, where mm -hmm. she'll have a TARDIS, she'll be travelling with K-9, and she'll be going from planet to planet freeing slaves. So she, she's doing the Doctor, but in a smaller universe, you know, so she's a sort of second-rate Doctor. <laughs> and so she comes out of the TARDIS, she tells her companion to stay inside, <laughs> she's all Zanian kind of... Um, uh, mysterious and, and annoying like Tom. But she doesn't quite get 
get it right. And I think her normal thing where she's a little happier and a little bit more sort of flip and smiley would have worked better. And the other thing I don't like about that scene is that she's punished for being the doctor because she's immediately captured and strapped to a chair. Um, so I think that's a bit unfortunate. But she can scream. I'll give her points on that yeah. over Mary Tan. Yeah, yeah. Like she, she does a great scream at the end of episode two. Or, or which, yeah, yeah. In, in, episode yeah. Two. But it's, it always concerns me when a companion starts talking about very early on in the story, you know, what if the doctor and I went different ways or there's just a line there heightened sort of spidey senses start tingling. No, 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 this could be the end of end, yeah. of, end of the companion. And the canine thing where he can't come back through the mirror. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. Can we talk about her departure? Yeah. Obviously it was, you know, canine and her departure was publicised quite a lot. This is the first story of the season not going up against um, Buck Rogers. And so um, suddenly the ratings are above 7 million for the first time. Oh, okay. The only, the only story of the season to have one episode above 8 million. Right. And two of the three episodes that place in the top 70 are in this story. Right. So, you know, it's taken us 20 episodes to get half decent ratings. Yeah. Her departure in episode four, I just think is so rushed. Yeah. And I really hate Tom's, I've always hated Tom's line, you were the noblest Romana of them all. For me, Mary Tam was like this. No, it's a quote. Oh. It's a quote from Julius Caesar. Well, okay, can I just finish and say <laughs> I really hate the line and I just think it applies to Mary Tam more than it does to Lala Ward's mm. incarnation. And, uh, and was it an ad lib or was it scripted? Or I, think it, I think it was scripted because the look on Tom's face, his heart isn't in that line. Yeah. They were probably fighting that day. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, just, I, still, don't, I still dislike the line. Yeah, because it can be read, because we've had two Romanas, it can be read as as uh, talking to Lala rather than talking to Romana. Yes. But yes. Um, Brutus is the no it's the final speech of Julius Caesar, I think, where Octavian comes in and talks about Brutus and says he was the noblest Roman of them all. Mm. Okay. Um, as I say, that line, is a bit, that line is clunky. The actual lines they have leading up to the departure, I don't think the script is at fault. I feel like the filming of that scene was rushed. There's, the, they sort of just say the lines with each other, and then and then it's gone. But the lines themselves are very nice. Like, just I'm not coming with you. I no actually, more orders, you know. I really like Lala's delivery there. Yeah, yeah. Like, because she's relieved in a way. Mm. She's happy. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. The, it's, it's not a sad departure. No. And those two, like, you can't do a sentimental departure. You can't do David Tennant and Billy no, Piper no. on different sides of the universe. I mean, they're going to different universes. You just can't do that with Tom because, you know, of what Tom's like. Mm. And the two of them are kind of grown-ups and it's not you know, it's never, ever going to be soppy with them. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so I quite like, you know, there's a lot of noise in the background. They're leaving in the middle of a kind of giant emergency and stuff. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and so it is really rushed. And then you do get that tag scene at the end. Tom's not in it, but the TARDIS is there. And Romana wonders if um, he's going to be okay. Yeah, with yeah. It. Well, we then do get a bit from Tom with Adric saying, will Romana be all right? And the Doctor says, she'll be superb. And, to <laughs> and Tom is brilliant in that moment. Yeah. And you can tell he's the Doctor talking about Romana and he's Tom Baker talking about Lala Ward. Yeah. You know, that moment is great. 
Uh, I think v very early on that foreshadowing you referred to, Todd, when she says, what if we go our separate ways? That's that's one of Matthew Waterhouse's best moments to date. You know, he only has a few words, but he he genuinely conveys the fear that this new family he's found with his own family dead is breaking apart. And it doesn't, it doesn't carry through the story because Adric is... Adric is very underused in this story. You know, he disappears for vast swathes of yeah. the plot. Yeah. I think that when we last see him in episode three and when we first see him in episode two, he's missing for about 20 minutes until he turns up on the laser and has that wonderful line of, I don't know what these buttons do, but it's pointing in your direction. It's so badly <laughs> delivered, that line, isn't it? He's really not very good, it's, poor Matthew. This story is not a showcase for him at all. Mm -hmm. Like, that walking around, keeping on tossing the coin where he's quite awkward. He shouts at Kana outside. I don't know. Shouts at Kana. I've got notes here, people. Shouts. Mm -hmm. at, Adric shouts at Kana and outside Hal. Dash. Pathetic. Right? So there is <laughs> oh, obviously yeah, yeah, something yeah. that I just kind of went. It's it's that bit where he's going, quiet! Oh, <laughs> dear Lord. And then I've got part four. Where is Adric? Where is he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's that continuity thing where he's got Canine's ear. Yeah. And then the ear's back. And the ear's back. Yeah. Ears yeah. back. It's like... Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not. This is not his finest hour. There's that bit where they're hiding under the blanket, and Romana says to him, "Follow them, follow, follow." It's because it's because Matthew missed his cue. Like he was meant to go on the first follow, <laughs> but Lala knew how behind they were in terms of filming. They had um, they had various overruns, the longest of which was half an hour. They had oh. a half hour overrun on the first day of filming. I think, actually, I think that's why Paul Joyce was initially fired. Yeah, but Lala stays in character, so they don't have to retake the scene. Uh, in preparation for these podcasts, I watch DVDs with the info text on, oh, on the bottom. Good. Which is, yeah, it's, it's very informative. But that wonderful bit where the Doctor's going to confront Rolvik and says to Romana, it's, it's, um, it's time you obey orders. It's long past time. You don't know where it is. Well, Andric then says, well, I'm coming too. And Romana gives yeah. him the same spiel as the Doctor. The caption that comes up on the screen at that moment is, can you tell that Lala Ward and Matthew Waterhouse didn't really get on? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I have no confirmation of this, but I believe that they, I believe that um, Lala still doesn't rate Matthew very highly, possibly. Well, the, he's, um, he is fairly frank about how he felt she treated him in mm. his autobiography. Yeah. Which yeah. is available in all good bookstores. It's actually pretty good. It's and, a great read. And mm. some pretty terrible bookstores as well, let's be frank. <laughs> you know, that, that's not an indication of the book. The other part I really love about the ending is um, Romana's last line, like, um, and we're going to help free them. I think it's something we should do. Wittingly, possibly unwittingly, you know, three years ago we had Graham Williams start and he was appalled that the Doctor had this, had a lack of any responsibility and wasn't answerable to anyone. The character that Graham Williams introduces as his ideal companion character to start having a moral compass ends up having probably the greatest moral compass of a leaving companion, maybe equal with Joe Grant mm. of I'm leaving explicitly to devote my life to helping other people because that's what the Doctor does. Yeah. And I think maybe that's the response to Graham Williams. The Doctor is such a great character and thus Romana becomes such a great character, not because he has a responsibility or a duty to help people, but because he does it anyway. Yeah. And that's, that's how Romana leaves as well, because Rod, Rod and I had a long discussion about this departure because he hates it. He hates how perfunctory it is. He hates that 
free, not that she's going off to free slaves, but she's going to have a horrible life and this, that, the other. Like, he, he really hates companion departures where they're killed or they have a horrible life. You know, he's like, your life should be made better by the Doctor. But I'm saying, well, no, her life is made better, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah, no, she goes off to be the Doctor. Yeah, she, exactly. They're going to build the TARDIS. Um, they're going to travel around eSpace fighting oppression. It's exactly what the Doctor does. She's mm. going to be the Doctor. She's mm. going to be superb. She is superb. I get, you know, on another slightly different tack, you know, the links to the 70s are, are now, you know, disappearing. Canine's been in the show for almost four years, yeah. Romana for three. Yeah. You know, this is quite, this is where the 80s are really, you know, if we didn't know that we were in the 80s, we are now going to be mm. well and truly the 70s are, mm. are, are long gone. And in fact, it's Sandifer whom I haven't quoted for a long time, so here goes. <laughs> he says that, the way that the re the regeneration is handled is that Tom's show is just gradually dismantled around him and Davison's show is introduced before Davison comes in. And so, uh, you know, uh, that's what's going to happen over the next few stories. Mm -hmm. Well, the next two, you know, by the time Tom leaves, the program is just not recognisably his. And this is the biggest shake-up I think we've had in a season for a very, very long time. Yeah, the only comparable one I can think of is where we start season four with um, the first Doctor, Ben and Polly, and end it with the second Doctor, Jamie and Victoria. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the format, the stars, the companions, the producers, the script editor, all change in the course of nine stories. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we have a similar thing here over the course of seven. But it's a, there's much more creative unity here, obviously. Yes, it is absolutely. a very deliberate thing. Yeah. Like, it's retooling the program deliberately, whereas season four is, what mm. the hell are we doing now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, apparently, it was also around um, the time of rehearsals for this that Tom decided he was going to leave. It's part of the reason that... Um, because very often when the show got into the studio and there might be a moment of the script that doesn't work. So, for instance, there was meant to be a comedic moment in here, which Barry Letts had let through, of um, Royce or Aldo behind Packard's console repairing it and sort of popping their head up and having a chat with Packard. But whenever Rorvik turned around, they'd be behind the console, so they thought Packard was talking to himself. Right. But, yeah, then Packard's console is up against a rail on the upper floor and they couldn't do it. Now, normally that scene would have been reworked, but Bidmead was off writing Logopolis because suddenly Tom was leaving. Ah. Final word about scripting on this. This wasn't the original story for this slot. It was originally a story called Sealed Orders. By Christopher Priest. By Christopher Priest, who would um, later pitch stories for next seasons, also unsuccessful. Uh, but the premise was going to be... Uh, multiple TARDISes and multiple Doctors arising after the TARDIS lands inside itself. And mm. uh, the storyline, and I think some of the scripts were delivered, but it was deemed to be unworkable for television, i.e. we can't afford this on Doctor Who's budget. But, yeah, obviously Bidmead liked the idea of TARDISes inside TARDISes. Mm. More which in a fortnight. Yes. Before we go, do we think that this script is appropriate for Doctor Who on television at this time? Yes. Yeah, I do. I think that what's happening is after the show being in a bit of a rut, um, you get Bidmead coming along and showing us what it can do. Yeah. And 
as I said, everything is scientists uh, in the big media, mm -hmm. and I like that this is a break from that. I like that it does magic in a way that those oddball stories like The Mind Robber or The Celestial Toymaker do, but that it does it in that sort of bid-median sort of science, alchemy context. Um, it's variety, you know. Mm -hmm. I think this season is really, really strong because it does a lot of different things. Within its thematic structure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. where it's still yeah. all about entropy, it's still all about... Um, science and superstition, um, it, you know, I think it's a really strong season and I like this story as part of it. Before we finish up, I'd just like to um, relay something from Paul Joyce, the director. Now, I mentioned earlier that the lighting director, lighting engineer, uh, would write letters having a go about him, and his main criticism of Paul Joyce is that Paul Joyce's methods would be better suited to working on film than the environment of television. And apparently Paul pulled him up on that and said, well, Barry, I think you'll find that television will start moving more towards film and maybe you'd like to come with me on that journey. Sadly, and without any mention of Sagan's death face, we come to the end of Warrior's Gate. We'll be back next week to discuss The Keeper of Truck, and until then, you can find us online at flightthroughentirety.com, Flight Through Entirety on Facebook and iTunes, and FTE Podcast on Twitter. Meanwhile, over on Bondfinger, we have an array of James Bond commentaries available. Until next week, may none of your chains be made of dwarf star alloy. Thank you very much, and good night. Good night. See you soon. I'm really sorry that I didn't mention that this is the first Doctor Who story with an apostrophe in the title. That was Flight Through Entirety with Todd Bealby, Nathan Bottomley and Brendan Jones. This episode, Petulant Teenage Moment, was recorded on the 20th of March 2016. The next episode will be released on May 15th. Three days after this story, Romana negotiated $4 an hour internships for all the Farrells, thus setting them free. It's funny, you know, like, um, Kill the Moon, Peter Harness was told to Hinchcliffe the sun out of it. Mm. No one ever tells anyone to bid me the sun out of it, do they? They probably should, <laughs> actually. <laughs> well, they could say... Do you want a J&T this year? Yeah, I mean, many Do things. Do you want to wiles of the <laughs> out of it? <laughs> <laughs> Just massacre. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>